It's good to be with you guys. Um, again, my name is Chad Kinser. I'm sort of brand new to the Frontline team just a few weeks ago. And uh, my privilege this morning is to stand again with you and to share this moment uh, with God's Word together and wrap up sort of our summer series. So if you've uh, been out of the month of July, we've been working through the parables of Jesus. And today we're kind of wrapping that up, looking at sort of our final parable uh, in this series we've been doing. And so here's, here's kind of what that's meant for us. What we've been doing is in the gospel sort of books, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are these moments in the life of Jesus where he takes a moment with a question that was asked to him or a scenario that occurred. He takes that moment and he answers the question or takes that scenario to teach a broader lesson on what the kingdom of God looks like. So we say, hey, great question you asked to me. Hey, that scenario occurred. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. Here's what life in the kingdom, here's how this thing works. This is what we've been doing, looking at these stories he tells us over the past few weeks. And today we're kind of wrapping all that up and we're picking up with where we left off last week in Luke 18. So if you've got a Bible this morning, open up to Luke chapter 18. Such a privilege to be standing with you, sharing this passage with you. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, Luke chapter 18. And so I want to begin our time together by just reading this passage, and then we'll jump in from there. And while you're turning there, I want to let the cat out of the bag as to where this passage is heading this morning. Jesus is going to be teaching us, uh, warning us against this kind of self-righteous man-made religion, and at the same time propping up for us the scandalous grace of God and the true righteousness that comes from his kingdom. That's what we're going to be reading about in the passage that we're looking at this morning. So I want to begin by reading this, and then we'll jump in from there. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. The voice of our King Jesus speaks to us like this. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, And treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, our King, by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking that you would be merciful to us, a gathering of sinners. God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, would you now perk up our ears to hear, our minds to receive and to pay attention, our heart's affection to respond to Jesus. Where we're traveling today, God, you know it's upstream for us. You know it's not normal to us. God, we're going to need your help today. So I pray now that, Jesus, you would speak through your word. You would help us to hear. You would help me to make sense. And this would be your moment, Jesus. Would you have your people shape us now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, 
my life was sort of enlightened to the world of fine coffee. My whole world was sort of open for me as I discovered hand-brewed coffee or these pour-over brewing methods, right? Now, some of you hear me saying that this morning, and you're already sort of putting me in that place of judgment that I'm one of those coffee snobs, right? You and your fine coffee. Listen, you're exactly right. I am an unashamed coffee purist. I'm coming out today, kind of putting that before you. I'm unashamed, and here's the way I see it, right? If God would give us something better than Folgers or Keurig or Starbucks, if God would give us something better than that to have a morning cup of therapeutic bean juice, then who am I to bypass that sort of common grace given to man and, uh, and I'll just take all the good stuff I can get to get myself through this life, right? And so every morning, I kind of have this list that I work through. Now, I kind of have this list that I worked through in order to get my caffeinated fix. And it all starts with pulling out my kettle and heating that thing to a perfect 205 degrees, the optimal brewing temperature. So I pull out my kettle, I get that going. Then I pull out my beans and I pull out my kitchen scale and I measure out just the right number of grams of coffee beans. I throw those into the grinder while that's getting taken care of. I pull out my choice method of brewing that given morning. Most mornings it's the Chemex. Any Chemex followers in here? Okay, one, good. You and me, man. Everyone else thinks we're weird. So here it goes. So I pull out the Chemex. I get the, I get the filter set up just right. The water comes to a boil. I then I wet the filter so as to not have the filtery taste on my coffee grounds. I pour in the coffee grounds, set that thing back on the kitchen scale, set the timer to four minutes, the optimal time for drip down. Then I begin to measure out the perfect ratio of hot water and grams of water to grams of coffee. Four minutes later then, I have this beautiful pot of coffee sitting in front of me. And I pour into my mug and my wife laughs at me. But I pour into my mug a flavorful, refreshing, smooth cup of coffee. And heaven descends on my little kitchen. And this happens every morning. This is my list. These are the steps I go through. There's some of you who hear that and you think I'm ridiculous. That's fine. That's okay. But there's others of you who hear this. And I've got one in the room with me today. There's others of you that hear this. I think there's more than just him. And you know the point of no return after tasting a finely brewed cup of coffee. I can't go back. Keurig, I'm not judging you if you're Keurig. I'm not. Or Starbucks, kind of there. <laughs> but I'm just saying you can't go back. And this is, this is my morning list. Now, again, this might sound crazy to some of you, but this is my list. And I work through it every morning. But every one of us in the room, we have a list. We have a list of particularities, a set of quirks of ways that we like certain things to go and certain things that we want to control. So for you, maybe it's a different morning routine. Maybe it's a different way of starting your day or going about your day. Maybe that's the list that you work through. Maybe for some of you, it's a particular way and the kind of things that you go through to get your personal workspace or your personal space at home or in your garage just the way that you want it. There's a list that you go through to establish it. Maybe it's the way you pack your bag and systematically kind of put things in your bag before you go on a trip and travel. Maybe it's a bucket list for you. Maybe you have a list of things that you want to accomplish, things that you want to do. But you see what I'm saying? All of us have a list. 
All, all of us have a set of preferences that, that we want to control, that we want to maintain, that we want to work through to make sure that whatever it is that we're experiencing, whatever it is that we're doing, is going just the right way in the way that we want those things to go. Now, here's the deal, right? So, so when it comes to all kinds of different things in life, it is great to have a list like this. According to your varied preferences, have all the lists you want when it comes to things that, at the end of the day, just are non-essentials to life. So here's the thing, right? If I don't get my coffee the way I want it in the morning, I'm going to be okay. Despite the fact that I don't feel okay, I'm going to be okay. My wife coaches me through this, you know? It's okay to have your very lists when it comes to things that at the end of the day aren't all that important in life. But here's the truth of the matter. Many of us take this list mentality that's so natural to us, so normative to us, and we then lay it on Christianity. So, so that Christianity for us becomes a list. And so here's what I mean. If I were just to have coffee with any one of you, made the right way. If I were to have coffee with any one of you, and then I just said, hey, hey, what does it mean to be a godly person? What does it mean to be a spiritual religious person? I think many of you, I know if I were on the other side of this question, the tendency would be to begin speaking in terms of a list, to begin thinking in terms of a list. And so you would start off by saying, well, if you're going to be a godly person, you don't do these things and you don't say these things and you don't go to these kinds of places. Or then maybe you would roll positive. You're going to do these things. You're going to start saying these kinds of things and you're going to go start going to these kinds of places. And you'll start thinking in terms of a list. And if you can have the list, and if you can do the list, then you're going to be a good and godly person. If you can hold the list together, then you'll be good with God. You'll, you'll, you'll be good with God and you'll sort of have a way of thinking about your life where I'm put together. I can have peace with myself. I've kept the list. I've done the list. But if you can't keep the list, well, and many of us grew up thinking this way, right? Many of us sort of think this way even now, like, or, or maybe you don't think this way anymore, but this was somehow by the way you grew up, the way you thought about Christianity. But here's the problem with that. I think for some of you in the room, you grew up this way. You, you began to think about Christianity this way, and you resent the list. Like you resent it with all of the moral policing, all of the judgment of he said, she said, or that person over there, can you believe they, or can you believe they said that? And so you resent the list. It's maybe the reason that you walked away from God years ago. I want nothing to do with that. The list is nonsense. And it's painful. And it hurts. The list. There's others of you, though. You've received the list mentality. You've received it, but, but you feel crushed by it. And so you, you're seeking to keep the list, but you're the kind of person, having received that mentality, you're, you never feel good enough before the Lord. You, you're, you're finding yourself constantly doubting God's love for you. You feel crushed by the list. Some of you resent it. Some of you feel crushed by it. And yet there's a third group in the room. And you're the kind of people, you've received the list. And as far as you're concerned, you've kept the list. And over time, slowly but surely, you've become really proud of yourself of being able to hold yourself together and keep the list. And for you, it, believing the love of God seems relatively easy because the rules are easy for you. And so you've 
kept the list. Okay, so wherever you are this morning, I think those are the three really fair groups of people. Wherever you are this morning, resenting the list, crushed by the list, or feeling self-fulfilled because of what you perceive to be your ability to keep the list, wherever you are, here's good news for us today. Christianity is not a list. It's not. And so wherever that list came from, it's not coming from God. Whatever you've imagined to be that list, it's not the life of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Wherever you are on the spectrum of list keeping, that's not the life of the kingdom of God. And this is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus is addressing in Luke chapter 18. And notice back in verse 9, in Luke 18, Jesus is going to begin this parable, much like he began the parable last week, where he's going, to get, he's going to preface it by giving us the interpretation of the parable before we actually get the parable. He's going to give us the sense before we get the story. Look at 9. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So Jesus is about to speak up and he's about to address this kind of faux righteousness, this kind of pseudo external list keeping kind of Christianity. Listen, it has all the appearance of all the right things. You've got to track with this. What he's about to speak to is a kind of faux righteousness that has the appearance of all the right things, but at its heart, it's empty, it's Christless, and it's absent from the kingdom of God. Now listen, we've been going through parables for four weeks now. And I can't think of a parable more important for us. Especially because so many of us in the room, like me, have grown up in this sort of Oklahoma Bible Belt religion. We've grown up with it this way. And what Jesus is about to do, he's going to draw a line in the sand between what I believe many of us often mistake a life pleasing for God and the true righteousness that comes from Jesus alone. He's going to draw a line in the sand here. And now listen, the difference, it's sneaky. And it's often very subtle, and it's going to feel like just a one-degree turn to the left, to the right, wherever you are. But the outcome, even though it's subtle, the outcome has eternal weight for our souls, all right? So the parable begins in verse 10, and Jesus is going to introduce to us the two characters. He's building out this story, this lesson around. Look at 10. He says, two men went up to the, parab- uh, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, so there's two men in this story. One of them is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. If you've had time in church, both of these terms, both of these people, these kinds of people are very familiar to you. But I, wanna, I want us to make sure we're on the same page as to who these kinds of people are. So the first one Jesus says is a Pharisee. So in Jesus' day, a Pharisee was a part of the religious elite. They were religious leaders in the Jewish community. They they would have walked around as the ones leading the faith pastors, you might think of them as, right? And I think it's important to note here because Pharisees often get a bad rap. We we know they're the ones that Jesus is constantly attacking uh, in his teachings. We know they're the ones that conspired to have Jesus put to death. And so we automatically sort of put them in a category where we dismiss them and we go, oh, we're not them because, well, after all, we're here in church today. But listen, Pharisees, in terms of their daily life, 
they were really good people. Like they would have been really great neighbors. Like they were experts. They were well uh, educated. They were, they would have been experts in Old Testament law. They would have been very religious such that they would have sought to carry this out. So they would have been very great neighbors. They would have been your most religious neighbors, right? They would have been very kind people, very polite people. They would have been the kind of people, if you didn't already kind of have your category for them, they would have been the kind of people that you would have saw walking around your neighborhood, walking in your community, at the coffee house, at the restaurants. You would have noticed them and you would have, you would have thought so well of them that you're like, I want, to, I want to emulate my life after them. Like that's the kind of cultural sort of tradition of the Pharisees. They would have been the kind of people that when your life hit the fan, you're seeking them for advice. So often we give them a bad rap, but but that's a little unfair because they would have been the kind of people in the community that you would have sought after. So, so this is the Pharisee, a religious leader in the Jewish community. But there's another character. It's a tax collector, a tax collector. So, so in our modern day context, I tried thinking of this all week. We don't have a real good grid for who tax collectors are in our modern day. So, so these would have been Jewish men who would have gone to Rome, who, who, who was ruling over uh, the Jewish people at this point in history. They would have gone to Rome and they would have bought the right from Rome to, to then tax their own people as a way of using that money to strengthen the, the, the power of the Roman military to further oppress the Jewish people. So, so they were the worst of all sellouts, bailing on their own people and buying the right from their oppressors to further oppress their own countrymen and neighbors. And then make a little capital uh, after that because they would have taken more than their, their given tax. I mean, this was, f- tax collectors were a wicked, wicked kind of deceiving, manipulative, dark people. They, they were the hated of the entire Jewish community. Their own people selling out to then turn on the oppression that the people are under. These are the two characters in the story. And Jesus has these two men now going down to the temple to pray. Both are going to pray at the temple. And now we need to watch what's happening in their prayers because what's going on in their prayers is exactly the point Jesus is making in this entire story. Look at 11. 11. It says, the Pharisee Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the others, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, so the Pharisee prays first. The Pharisee prays first and notice the content of his prayer. He thanks God that he's not like the others. Now, now I want to call out how, how kind of shady it is that he throws the tax collector under the bus because he's thanking God that he's not like the others. And he kind of goes, and that guy. Thank you for not making me like him. And I, I'm, you, whoever you are over here, I'm not calling you out, right? But, but this is kind of how he does it. But notice, he's thanking God. He's giving gratitude to God that he's not a thief. God, thank you that I'm not a thief. I'm not a cheat. Thank you that I'm, I'm honest with my finances, that I'm faithful to my wife. God, thank you for the devotion you've given to me. Now, I, I point out and I stress, notice the content of his prayer, because so far as it goes, it's a good prayer. Like if you and I didn't already know where this story was headed, 
If you and I already didn't have a category for Pharisees and all we had was this prayer sort of by itself, it might be one that you could buy at Mardell and just throw on your wall, right? Like this would, if you didn't have the categories for where this thing is headed or who's praying it and you just kind of saw it by itself, you would go, yeah, I want to be able to thank God for those things. It's a good prayer, which makes this text really tricky. Notice he's thanking God for the righteousness in his life. He's giving gratitude for God. For the de- he's giving all the credit to God for the devotion he has. He's, igno- he's not trying to earn his righteousness. He's not, he, God, I'm recognizing you. Any of the goodness, any of the morality, any of the righteousness I have in my life, it's come from another way of reading this prayer would be this way. God, I thank you that you have saved me from the progression of wickedness in my life. I thank you that you've saved me from the progression of wickedness in my life. Things I would have become if not for your good. God, thank you. You see, this is a commendable prayer. So far as it goes, it's a commendable prayer, a prayer that I would dare say every believer in this room has prayed. I know I have. I know I have. You've seen someone's life blow up. You've seen someone's life exposed with the sin. And you go, God, if not for your grace, I'm in the same mess. Right? So this is his prayer. It's a good prayer so far as it goes. This is the Pharisee's prayer. Now, now we get the tax collector's prayer. And it's monumentally shorter. Right? Uh, So look look at them 13. The tax collector steps up and makes his prayer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing about religion. Nothing about morality. Just a cry for help. I mean, there's nothing about religion here, nothing about morality mentioned at all in this tax collector's prayer. All he does is he buries his face to the ground. He screams out while hitting himself, be merciful to me. Like, this is as broken as it gets. So this guy's at a place of sobriety where he's bypassed the the need he would feel to prove himself. He's bypassed the need he would have to kind of explain, well, the reason I'm selling, the reason I'm collecting taxes is because, well, he's not proving himself. The reason my life is this, he's not explaining himself. He's even past the point of his own bustedness where he's, he's no longer passing blame on other people for his mess. He's just owning it. Be merciful to me. This is his prayer. Now, there's one more verse to this parable. And in the final verse, Jesus is going to come around and he's going to apply this to us. And I've got to be honest with you. As I read this final verse this week, it absolutely messed me up. I mean, it just wrecked me out. My wife was like, okay, you need to go for a walk, right? It messed me up. It's caused me such wrestling and it's caused me such reflection. 14. I tell you, 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Now, please stop there. This man went down to his house justified. Now, you remember back in verse 9 when we started this whole thing, what this whole parable was about, right? It's about the true righteousness that comes from God, the true justification that comes from God. And what the text said here is that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. A word we don't use very often, but what this means is that he was declared righteous in the court of God. That he is declared, he's got good standing, right standing with God. Because of his cry for mercy, God has granted it to him. No strings attached. Now remember his track record. Remember his track record. I mean, this guy's past, his history is wrecked out with manipulation, with horrific deceit. It's wrecked out with, with lies. It's stealing. And this is just the stuff that we know about because he's a tax collector. I mean, surely his story in the pattern of his life was even worse than that that led him to finally making the decision to be a tax collector. We just know about his tax collecting record. Surely it's worse than that. And yet, and yet, God has no wrath for him. God has no wrath for him. No strings attached. God has counted this man righteous. Not with an asterisk, righteous. God has given him mercy. Now listen, we could stop the sermon right here and feel really cheery and leave this place in sort of a revival party that God could even save a tax collector, let's get out there, right? We could leave this place like that if there were a period after the word justified. But there's not a period after the word justified. There's a comma. And you're like, I didn't think I was gonna get a grammatical lesson today. We kind of have to. It's really important here. And what comes after the comma, listen, are four of the most terrifying words that I feel like I've come across in Scripture in a long time. Four of the most terrifying words I've come across in Scripture in a long time. Look at it with me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, look at it, rather than the other. Rather than the other. So what this means, the tax collector goes home freed before God. Absolutely free. Free indeed, you might say. But the Pharisee does not. Now, you and I have to feel the tension of this. If you don't already, we have to feel the weight of this because if we bypass what's happening here in these four words, then we're going to miss the whole point of what's going on here. Okay, so track with me. This Pharisee, he spent his entire life doing all the right things, saying all the right things, going to all the right places. He spent his life, he's been to VBS every year. He went to youth camp every year. He threw his stick in the fire for Jesus every Thursday night of camp. He's been on mission trips. He came from a good family. He went to college. He got a degree, top of his class. He's very well educated. 
He's got a good job now. He's a good husband. He's very generous. He gives tithes on all that he gets. He prayed that, which means he's very, he gives a lot of money to the church. When it comes to the list of religion that he received and the cultural morality poured into him, he passed the test with flying colors. He's done everything right. Everything. And remember, he even acknowledges God as the one who's given to him all of his goodness, all of his morality, and all of his righteousness. And yet, the tax collector goes home justified rather than the other. Rather than the other. So wait a second, right? How? How is this the case? How does Mr. Morality go home under the weight of God's wrath, but Mr. Madman goes home free? How? This is the question that we have to be asking. The problem of the Pharisee and the problem of many of us moral ones in the room is singular. A single problem before God. This man was truly upright in his manner of life. This man was intensely devout to his religion. Yet his problem, his problem was that he was looking to his own expressed righteousness. Yes, God gave it, but he was looking to his own ability. God, you gave it, but look at what I'm doing with it now. He was looking to his own expressed ability to carry out his life before God. He was looking to that and trusting that as his righteousness before God. His problem was his his commitment and his confidence in his own morality and his own goodness sent him home separated from God. And I fear this is the case for many of us in the room. Like I fear that. I fear that for myself all week long, right? Because we're Oklahomans. Church is what we do. <laughs> We're more, moral is what we are. We're people of the land. We work hard for everything we get. We are polite, good-hearted people. We believe the right things. Sure, we believe Jesus. We believe in our own goodness too. We're good people from Oklahoma. The heartland. I got heart, plenty of it, and plenty of hope. We have slogans like this, Right? And we feel pretty good about ourselves that we believe all the right things, that we do the right thing more than we've done the wrong thing. What about us isn't savable? Though we would never say that out loud. We know the game too well. What about us isn't savable? And if that's where you are, you will go home just like the Pharisee. But it's precisely at this place that the tax collector stands apart and is justified with God. It's precisely at this place. Why? Because he looks entirely away from himself and to God alone. 
He looks entirely away from, he looks to nothing in himself and entirely to only what God could provide. It's at that point that he stands apart from the Pharisee and justified before God. And now here's the thing. If you're following the tension of all of this, you might have a question I had this week. Can you read that? And be careful. Because the question is this. Well, of course he looked away from himself. He had nothing to look to. Like, of course he looked away from himself and to God alone. Of course he would have nothing to thank God for because he's got nothing. He's a tax collector. His record is awful. Of course he looked away from himself. And what makes you? What makes any of us think that we're above from looking away from ourselves? What makes you think that there's anything about you that moves you beyond a place of being desperately needy for the mercy of God? So here's the sad reality. And and this is, again, what wrecked me out. I'll say it like a broken record all week long. I think the sad reality for many of us, I know for me, is that we've come to a place in our lives where we cease to feel the need anymore to pray something like the tax collector. We, feel, we don't feel the need to pray like this anymore. Like, sure, back there, there was a moment I, I hated or there was a season in my life that was awful. And so I prayed something like this. It was appropriate back then. It was appropriate back there, but I'm better now. I'm better now. So this prayer doesn't show up on my radar anymore. I don't have to do this one before God because I'm not there anymore. I'm not there anymore. There's others of you in the room and you haven't kept the list. In fact, you chunked the list a long time ago. You hate the list. You want nothing to do with it. You turned from God a long time ago and somehow this morning you find yourself here and you're hearing all of this and you're wondering if the, you're wondering if the mercy of God could be for you. Like there's some things you've done, some things you've been caught up in that haunt you like crazy when you lay your head on the pillow at night and you're wondering, could the mercy of God be for me? Oh, please hear me this morning. Please hear me. The mercy of God is absolutely for you. Absolutely for you. In fact, Jesus is screaming to us. He's screaming to us in this parable. The mercy of God is not intended for any other kind of people. Only people who have sins, only people who are under condemnation, deserving hell and damnation. Those are the only kind of people the mercy of God is for. Those are the only kind of people the mercy of God is for. The first link between you and Jesus is not your goodness, but your badness. That's the first link between you and Jesus. And so the good news for us today is that all of us are those kinds of people. Some of us in the room are guilty of gross unrighteousness, but there's others of us that are guilty of an equally horrifically gross self-righteousness. Guilty. But for any, 
for any who would look away from themselves and entirely to the broken body, shed blood, and empty tomb of Jesus and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The reply of Jesus to this man will be the reply to you. You will go home justified. Justified. Counted righteous in the court of God. Listen, if morality could save us, then Jesus died for no purpose. If there's ever a sermon preached and you didn't need Jesus to complete the sermon, then it wasn't a sermon. It was just a rambling on that hurt all of us. If morality could save us, we could just hear our sermons and go on and live our good lives and have our good homes and our good dinners and watch our good TV on a Sunday evening and good, 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 good. If morality could save us, then why did Jesus die? As we close this morning, where, where in your life are you looking to something other than Jesus for your righteousness before God? Where are you looking to something other than Jesus alone for your rightness with God? Where in your life have you began to look more to your ability to hold yourself together and feel good about that more than you look to Jesus who stands to put us back together? Where? The answer to that question is critical and your response is even more so. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves for righteousness. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner.